Garden Success is brought to you in part by the Arbor Gate, featuring unusual plants, artisan-created decorative pieces, and a constantly changing array of items that bring beauty, comfort, and even flavor to the home and garden. Arbor Gate, 15635 FM 2920, Tomball, Texas, 281-351-8851, or arborgate.com. Garden Success is also brought to you by The Farm Patch, 3519 South College Avenue in Bryan, 979-822-7209. Welcome to Garden Success with Skip Richter the show designed to help you have a bountiful garden and a beautiful landscape. Call in now with your lawn and garden questions at 979-845-5689 or email your questions to gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And now, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist, Skip Richter. Well, hello and welcome to Garden Success. We are normally a call-in show where we answer your gardening questions but today we're coming to you by tape, and we have a very special show today, That one that I am fascinated about, I'll say, uh, and that is on the topic of bees. Now, we have talked honeybees in the past, but today we're, we're not going to talk honeybees. We're going to talk about all the other bees that are out there, and I think you will be surprised to learn not only how many, but uh, the different groups and, and the ways that they benefit our gardens and our landscapes. Uh, our special guest today is Dr. Karen Wright. Uh, Karen is the associate curator of the Texas A&M Insect Collection. Now, if like me, you think of a old cigar box with some paraffin melted in the bottom and a few bugs stuck on top as an insect collection, I think you're going to see something on a little different scale today. Welcome, Karen. So good to have you. Thank you, Skip. Well, uh, Dr. Wright, in, in curating the A&M uh, uh, insect collection. Uh, tell us, give us a little bit of an idea. How big is this? You know, I'm, t I'm thinking this is more than one shoebox, right? Well, Texas A&M is home to one of the largest university-based research insect collections in the country. Wow. And so we are a resource not only for the state, but the rest of the country and the world. Uh, we get a lot of use uh, from out of this country as well. So wow, that's cool. We, so how many insects are in the collection, roughly? Well, we have fully curated, mounted, and uh, processed over three million specimens. And wow. that's, uh, we're almost up to about 60,000 species oh in the collection. 60,000 different mm -hmm. species of insects. And uh, they come in at a pretty good rate, I think. Like uh, typically, what do you see in a, in a uh, year in terms of the number of insects? Well, most, most of our growth comes from donations. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a lot of amateur entomologists out there who like you say, have their uh, cigar boxes yeah. and whatnot. <laughs> uh, but some people get really into it in their lives, and they have huge, wonderful collections. And even if they're a grocery store manager or a businessman or a doctor, right. uh, these hobbyists mm -hmm. really uh, benefit the entire state of Texas by then donating their hard-worked collections to right. the collection, adding to our knowledge about insects in, in the state. That's, that's wonderful. And yes, there are a lot of people like that. And I'm amazed at the knowledge uh, of people. You know, that 
they were not entomology majors in, in school, but they're serious about it, and they work hard, uh, and it, it's, it's stunning how much some of those folks can know about it. You're insects. right about that. I mean, so there are so many insects on this planet that mm-hmm. not and nobody can know all of them, and so each person or each entomologist mm-hmm. or even every amateur entomologist right. has to specialize in a certain group. Right. And how people decide which group they specialize in is often a little bizarre. Right. But once they pick their group, they usually know that group a lot better than academics do because they they put so much passion and energy into it. That is cool. You know, I I had an insect collection growing up, not more than one. And uh, I was fascinated by it. And in college, in, a, in the dorm, I had a pair of hissing cockroaches mm-hmm. that lived in my dorm. I named them Riff and Raff wow. out of the Aggie Rick, Riffity, Riffity, Riff, Raff, because you just touch them and they hiss. It's yeah. kind of cool. Mine were li- uh, Larry, Moe, and Curly. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Okay. Well, um, so tell us a little bit about what's going on now with the, the uh, huge research uh, uh, curation of insect specimens at Texas A&M. What kind of project are you working on to take them to the no- next level in terms of being valuable for researchers? Well, at the moment, we're working on two major projects. Uh, one is called Terrestrial Parasite Tracker, okay. which is to database uh, the locations and the times of all the blood-sucking insects in the collection. And this is, that data will eventually be used by researchers here and elsewhere uh, all across the country. Um, This is part of a a national effort of a bunch of different collections across the country to get all that data of all the blood-sucking organisms so that they can study disease transmission Mm. and, and things like that. That is cool. Yeah, like Chagras bugs yeah. or things that that carry disease. You name it: fleas, lice, ticks, mm. flies, kissing bugs. Um, you know, okay. any, anything that sucks blood, we're working on it. Mosquitoes is a big one. Okay. Well, I know some people are squirming in their chair right now, <laughs> while others are going way cool. I got to get in on that one. Uh, yeah. It it is interesting how people. Um, you know, select different kinds of insects that they're interested mm-hmm. in and, and want to pursue. Yeah, and then the other big project we're working on right now is a project with Texas Parks and Wildlife mm-hmm. to help to start the process of assessing the conservation status of insects within the state of Texas. And this is, of course, not all insects, mm-hmm. just a, a yeah. few more special insects that we want to, that we know are endemic to the state of Texas and that we really uh, that Parks and Wildlife really has the, mm, uh, well, their their goal is to protect and, and yeah. make sure that those Texas resources don't, mm-hmm. don't go away. So when you say conservation status, kind of give me an idea on what that, what that may mean in terms of insects. Like what, what are you looking at? What? Well, for the conservation status of things like birds and mammals and amphibians and reptiles, we know what species are here. We know where they occur, what habitat types, and what their needs for survival are. Mm-hmm. But for insects, there are so many species out there that we really lack even this basic knowledge of natural history of mm-hmm. most insects in the state of Texas. And mm-hmm. so where they occur, what habitat they need, um, whether 
you know, if they need a particular type, kind of flower or tree, if they're dependent on mm-hmm. a particular host, right. um, things like that. You know, we really don't have an, as much natural history information for every species of bug. Yeah. Uh, you know, we were visiting prior to the show about, uh, I, I mentioned about horticulture being a combination of disciplines and how they all work together. It's it, they, they don't live separately. And I've noticed that even with people that are really into birds, for example, and birding, uh, there's an international concern about some of the loss of insect species. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the stuff I've read is more anecdotal. Like when I was a kid, there were bugs all over the windshield and now not. <laughs> um, but I think that is kind of an issue that, yeah. that folks are looking at. Well, one of the big things that we do lack in insects is long-term data sets to uh-huh. really be able to monitor the populations of each of these species uh-huh. uh, over the long term. We uh-huh. really don't have uh, much in the way of that kind of data. Whereas for all the mammals and birds, we have lots and lots of data. Okay. So really with the insects, what we're looking at is a huge amount of diversity and a, a lack of information. That is, that is interesting. And I'm always surprised when I hear about how many beetles there are in the world or some, some tiny corner, of the, well, not tiny, but corner of the insect world, mm-hmm. you know, just in that in and of itself. Now, you guys are, are also looking at doing some digitizing. Right. So one of the main priorities of the insect collection at this point in time is to make all the data associated with every one of those three million specimens accessible to the larger research community, um, both locally and globally. So uh, digitizing specimens, every tiny little bug has a tiny little label on it in tiny little font that says where that bug was collected, Mm -hmm. who collected it, what day they collected it on, and sometimes even more information like what kind of flower it was collected on or for the bloodsuckers, what kind of animal it was collected Mm -hmm. on. And so you can glean a lot of this kind of natural history data from those tiny little labels. And right now we've only got about um, a little over 50% of our 3 million specimens Mm databased. So that is our main goal right now is to get that data available to other researchers. That is, that we're, pr- is. we're pretty much a library, but instead of books, we deal in dead bugs. Dead bugs. <laughs> I like that. Well, now, we, I suspect we may wander back into the, the larger thing called insects, but I, today we're really going to focus on bees. And, yes. And I know that's a love of yours and a specialty of yours. Yes. Uh, and uh, so everybody's familiar with honeybees. When you say bee, that kind of is the thing that comes to a lot of people's minds. Uh, and honeybees are not from here. They they came from another continent uh, and into this area. And we know why they're here. They they that they do pollinating, but they also you know provide honey, which mm-hmm. is which is a, a, a valuable uh, substance. But give me an idea. Honeybees is kind of like one thing. Mm-hmm. Give me an idea how many other bees there may be, like the species or. Mm-hmm. So. Um While there is only one species of honeybee, Apis mellifera, there are eight other species in that genus, but they're closely related, but they're not actual honeybees. Honeybees is a domesticated animal just like a cow. Mm -hmm. So there is no uh, natural honeybee. They all were uh, domesticated a long, long time ago. And that's a single species. Even the Af- what people call the Africanized honeybee right. is just right. a subset of mm-hmm. the regular honeybee. And okay. what makes 
one be regular and the other one <laughs> special. I, I'm not sure, certain of. Gotcha. I'm not a specialist on honeybees. Um, but there are more than 20,000 named known species of bees in the world. Uh, 20,000 plus. And those are only ones that have already been given names. There are a lot of species of bees that don't even have names yet. Uh, between Texas and New Mexico, where most of my work has been done, I have at least 50 to maybe 75 specimens or groups of specimens in, in the bee collection that don't have names yet because people haven't given them names yet. So along those lines, and I want to come back to what we're talking about, the types of native bees, but along those lines, uh, we kind of get the idea that we've been around this world for a long time and people have crawled over every corner. So we pretty much know all the bees that are out there. Uh, can you kind of give me a rough idea as to how many we know about to how many we probably have yet to discover or, or name? Or Well, globally, the estimates are that even though we know we have more than 20,000, that there are more likely 40,000. That are out there. That are, well, a total of 40,000. So we, we're probably only about halfway done with describing all the wow. species of bees. I mean... We think that we know the natural world in the United States, but there are still so many insects that don't even have names, let alone know we know anything about. Yeah. Um, so there's still a lot of work to be done, especially within the insects. <laughs> oh, wow. That is that is mind-boggling uh, to think about. And I, that's true in a lot of life science, you know, the... What we don't know is greater than what we know. <laughs> and every time you learn something new, there's some uh, three new questions right, pop up. <laughs> right, that's true. Well, cool. Well, let's go. Let's talk about the, these native bees, and then tell me about some of the types of native bees that are out there. Kind of the the big group pictures, you know, like bumblebee. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't know if people remember being taught in biology the whole. Um, kingdom, phylum, order mm -hmm. kind of thing. Uh, so within the bees, there are six major families that are okay. basically uh, groups of bees. I think there are seven total, but in the state of Texas, we only have six of those. Um, and so each one of those families is closer related to each other than they mm -hmm. are to other bees. And wow. they so they within these families, they have certain things that link them together. Um, Three of those families are called short-tongued bees, <laughs> and so they these bees uh, basically they they have a different structure to their tongue. Mm -hmm. And then the two most speciose or you know diverse families mm -hmm. are called the long-tongued bees. Okay, and they include the leaf-cutter bees, the megachylidae, and the digger bees. They Apidae, and the, that family includes bumblebees and honeybees. The digger. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they're um, they used to be considered separate families, but now they've been lumped into one family. So the honeybees okay. and bumblebees, which represent a subfamily, Apinae, they um, they're only just a subfamily of a much larger family. Okay. So as we get past the kind of the lo short term, long terms. Mm -hmm. What are some of the bees that people might see in their garden mm -hmm. from a kind of a common name standpoint? Yeah. Like, yeah. So carpenter bees is okay. uh, one interesting group of bees around here. Mm -hmm. There are two 
big groups of the carpenter bees, Mm -hmm. the big carpenter bees and the little carpenter bees. And carpenter bees are special because they are the only bees that can drill holes, just like their name suggests. They can actually create new holes in wood. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, these, uh, one of those uh, groups, the the big carpenter bees, Mm -hmm. these are the ones that you're going to see drilling a giant hole in your chair in your uh, on your back porch or like something a like that. Three-eighths inch mm-hmm. across yeah. hole. Yeah. And they're great pollinators. Um, and they, some of the species, especially in the northern United States, uh, can be destructive to mm-hmm. dwellings and things like that. Mm-hmm. But luckily, most of the species we have down here in Texas don't really okay. uh, do much damage, but they're still they're fun to look at and yeah. they're, they do a lot of great pollinating. So. Cool. And they're, they're, if, if someone was a gardener in their garden mm-hmm. and they saw a carpenter bee, they may think, oh, that's a bumblebee. Right. Because it's, if, yeah. to you, it's like totally different bee. Right. But <laughs> to the average person, it's, that's bumblebee-ish. So right. the, the, those of you listening, if you, um, if you go out and you see something that looks like a bumblebee, just take a closer look or take a picture because there's a lot of good information out there to yeah, help. Yeah, a quick uh, cheat on that one is that the carpenter bees tend to have a metallic sheen to them, either blue or green. Okay. So underneath their hair, they've got a really shiny black surface. Okay. But that has like an oil sheen color to it, either black or green, or okay. sorry, purple to blue to green. And so bumblebees are always just matte black. Okay. They don't have that metallic r- reflectance. Okay, cool. So, Carpenter yeah. bees. So that that's one, one group. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you mentioned uh, uh, the bumblebees, and then there's a lot of different bumblebees, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's quite a few species of bumblebees. Um, the most notable one there in the state of Texas is probably Bombus pennsylvanicus. That's the most common uh, bumblebee in the state. Um, but it is uh, the range of that bumblebee used to be the entire eastern of uh, North America. Mm-hmm. So, um, but its range is definitely shrinking. There are mm-hmm. several northern states where that bee n- doesn't exist anymore, even though it used to be fairly common. And uh, just for those listening again, I, there's a really cool poster that you can download online from Texas Parks and Wildlife that has the bumblebees of Texas, I think, uh, mm-hmm. some of the major ones mm-hmm. that where you can look at the marking on the back. So when you're out in the garden, you can get a better idea maybe which one you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bumblebees are... Uh, good for that because they're easy to tell the species apart, at least if you're looking at a queen. Okay. The males are a lot more difficult to tell apart, but oh. the, the queen bumblebees, the big females, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they have really uh, standardized color markings on them, so right. they're pretty easy to identify. Now, bumblebees are like a honeybee in that they're, there's a, they're a colony. They, they mm-hmm. may be in the ground, right? And they're, they're raising a, a, their young in a in a cluster, in a a community. Right, Right. so honeybees are considered eusocial, which is just Latin meaning truly social, whereas bumblebees are semi-social. So, and the big difference between those two types of sociality, they both have queens, they both have female uh, workers, and they both have a skewed sex ratio, meaning that they don't have nearly as many males as they do females. Mm But 
bumblebees are annual, meaning that they die every year. And there's a new um, a new queen and a new set of workers every year, whereas so. honeybees are perennial, and that single queen can live for many years. Oh, okay. So that that's the difference between semi-social and truly social. Okay. Now, because we're familiar with those, probably most familiar with honeybees and bumblebees, uh, but that is the exception. Social is the exception in yeah. the bee world. So give us a little bit of information on the bees that are not social. Right. So um, most native bees are solitary, meaning that every female digs her own nest, lays her own eggs, and provides pollen for her own eggs or larvae to eat. Mm -hmm. And so there's a 50-50 sex ratio because um, there's no social structure there. Okay. So the each female digs her own nest. Now, a lot of these species are what we call gregarious, which means that they they still, every female is solitary. Mm -hmm. they, they dig their own nest. They uh, feed their own young. Um, but they do so all together. So if you come across a bunch of nests, mm -hmm. uh, basically little holes in the ground, and yeah. you see lots of bees coming and going out of yeah. all these holes next to each other, yeah. that's called gregarious. Okay. And it's kind of like birds flocking, yeah. uh, safety in numbers kind of thing. It's like a, it's like a human subdivision. Mm -hmm. don't they? Yeah. <laughs> They've all got their yeah. little houses. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, I, I meant to ask you this question earlier, but bef before the we start, started taping, we mm -hmm. talked about what is a bee, and you had a, a very interesting answer. What it, What is a bee? Okay, well, uh, bees are in the order Hymenoptera, mm -hmm. along with the ants, ants, bees, and wasps. Are kind all, of a membrane-like wing? Yeah, they're mm -hmm. all very, very closely related to each other. Um, but basically, both bees and ants are just offshoots of the wasps. Okay. So... Pretty much in evolution, bees are just the vegetarian wasps. Okay. I like that. Yeah. That's so all insect, all all hola metabolis insects, meaning that their larvae looks a lot different to the adult, like a caterpillar mm -hmm. turning into a butterfly. Mm -hmm. um, one once they're adults and they have that hard exoskeleton, mm -hmm. they never grow again. So they don't need to eat other than uh, energy to fly around. So they drink nectar from flowers to get that sugar water energy to grow, uh, to fly around. Well, so I, had they don't, I had never thought about that yeah. before. But. So they don't need to eat uh, to grow. But yeah. what does need to grow are the larvae. So caterpillars, grubs, which are immature beetles. Mm -hmm. And then bees also have an immature stage, mm -hmm. which is uh, a larvae. And it needs to grow. So it needs some nitrogen in its diet. Okay. So wasps feed their young animal protein in order to grow. So sometimes you'll see a wasp that catches a caterpillar or it catches a cockroach. And mm -hmm. it's going to feed its young that animal protein. Mm -hmm. You might also see um, yellow jackets at the McDonald's dumpster pulling out a piece of hamburger. Oh, wow. Uh, so they, they feed their young animal protein, whether it be in the form of flesh or, mm -hmm. um, or uh, insects. Mm -hmm. um, but the bees have decided that they didn't like that diet, and they've switched to being vegetarian, and they feed their young pollen. And pollen is a part of the plant that has the highest nitrogen concentration. A lot it. of protein. Yeah, a lot of protein. So the, the, that gives the larvae 
you know, stuff to grow on okay. and all the vitamins and nutrients that are available in pollen. Okay. So uh, that, that I find that I just find that very interesting. The um, when, when we're talking about these types of bees, we, you know, we mentioned carpenter and we mentioned bumblebees and things. Uh, tell us about some of the other just general types of bees that mm-hmm. you might find. Uh, you and I were discussing the squash bee. Yeah. So squash bees is, um, you know, just uh, two genera, mm-hmm. um, Xenoglossa and Pepinapus, and they each of those genera have several species in them. So when you say squash bees, you're really talking about a group of maybe 30 or to 50 species. Mm-hmm. And these squash bees all evolved in North America because squash evolved in North and South America. The whole cucurbit group, yes. squash, cucumbers, yeah. yep. all, of, all pumpkins, of those plants. Pumpkins, all those pumpkins. guys, yeah. yeah. And so they have this really you know, bizarre flower form compared mm-hmm. to most other plants. Mm-hmm. And so squash bees uh, have just figured out how to do that pollination better than all the other bees. Yeah, a lot of gardeners, including myself, when I take pictures of flowers with bees, I get a bumblebee occasionally, but usually a a, um, honeybee in Mm -hmm. there. Uh, But squash are more efficient pollinators of, of, I'm sorry, squash Squash bees bees. are more efficient pollinators. Yes. So while... Honeybees uh, are generalist bees. Mm-hmm. They'll pollinate anything. They don't care what it is. They're not very picky. They'll pollinate any flower out there. But they're not necessarily really good um, mm-hmm. at any one particular plant. Whereas native bees uh, have a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of native bees have specialized on particular groups of flowers. And so they've become a lot mm, better equipped to do the job than honeybees, which are generalists. And, you know, they they might actually mess up some pollination because they'll go from one flower to a different flower to a different flower. Okay. And they might carry the wrong type of pollen to a, a species of flower. Whereas the bees that specialize, since they're loyal to that flower, they do a lot better job of pollinating it because they're transferring pollen just from that species from one individual to the next. Okay. Well, if you're listening today, we're normally a call-in show, but we're coming to you uh, from tape today. So don't don't try to call in. We'll be back live again next week. Uh, but today our special guest is Dr. Karen Wright. Uh, Karen is the Associate Curator of the Texas A&M Insect Collection. And while we're talking entomology in general, we are really honing in on native bees. And I think uh, if you're a gardener, you need to hear this. And uh, you will find that instead of just walking past flowers and saying, oh, there's a bee, uh, you'll suddenly now want to know which of these mini bees we're talking about today uh, are you seeing. Uh, and Dr. Wright, the uh, we've talked to carpenter and bumblebees, mm-hmm. uh, squash bees. Uh, you mentioned them being specific generally to a group of flowers mm-hmm. in many cases. I've heard of something called an orchard bee. So is that something mm-hmm. that is more common or is that another just large group of bees that are mm-hmm. being referred to? Well, in particular, the common name blue orchard bee does only refer to one species of bee, um, and Osmia lignaria. And this is a bee that has been imported into the United States, okay. just like the honeybee, for pollination okay. of, of crops and things like that. Interesting. The one you know, incredibly convenient thing about honeybees is mm-hmm. that 
they'll live in boxes yeah. and humans can pick up these boxes and move them from place to right. place. Well, the genus Osmia and Megachile is also a convenient bee to use in agriculture because they'll nest in those hollow little tubes. Okay. They can't drill their own holes, but they'll nest in any pre-existing hole. Okay. So they're another bee that we've been able to manage for crop pollination, mm -hmm. um, just like we've managed the honeybees for how many centuries now? Yeah. I've... I've uh... In the last couple of years, I became aware of the fact that uh, in addition to what you've described about honeybees hauled around, sold, and mm -hmm. stuff, you can purchase uh, bumblebees mm -hmm. in, in little boxes that you could put in a greenhouse where there's a crop and yeah. you want to pollinate them. I didn't know that other bees were sold like that. Right. So there are a lot of bumblebees also used for um, pollination, and more and more these days they're used in greenhouse areas. Mm -hmm. And so you can get the bumblebees to reproduce quite easily in these greenhouses. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're an, uh, a homeowner and looking for some bees for your garden mm -hmm. and things like that, all I ask is that you double check and make sure that the species that you're purchasing online mm -hmm. is actually native to where you live. Okay. There yeah. was a lot of problems when people were buying monarchs for a long time and they were getting the wrong strain of monarch because okay. there's an eastern population, western population. Well, we have the same problem with lady beetles. Yes, People exactly. purchase the convergent yep. uh, that has been captured hibernating, yep. and it's really not the one and we need to And it's not native, yeah. Yeah, bringing down here. Yeah. Uh, well, I've, I've noticed you getting right on the edge. Uh, when you talk about honeybees, <laughs> there seems to be a, uh, <laughs> what's the word? Uh, you're not so impressed as you are yeah. with the native bees, but... What, uh, let me just feed that flame a little bit. <laughs> I've noticed that out in the garden, if it's a windy day, a rainy day, the bumblebees are not getting, or the honeybees are not getting out as much, and some of the other bees seem to be better at pollinating in inclement weather. Is hmm. that true, or is that just my limited observation? Well, your observations come from firsthand uh, seeing things in, in right. real life. Um, Mine information comes from more of an intellectual background, uh -huh. and I would have thought exactly the opposite. Oh, really? Um, okay. Honeybees are one of the few bees that can actually generate heat. If you okay. remember your high school biology, insects are cold-blooded. Yes. They can't make heat from yes. metabolism. But honeybees can unhinge their wing muscles from their wings and then vibrate those muscles so fast that they make frictional heat. So honeybees can actually warm themselves up earlier in the morning and stay out later in the evening than yeah. most native bees don't have that ability. That's, that's interesting because I've talked to some beekeepers uh, who, you know, we went through the seven degree February yeah, right. day. <laughs> and when you, they throw a cover over them, they were kind of wondering, okay, I've lost the hive. But because they're feeding on honey, the mm -hmm. sugar, and they're burning those calories in the way. I didn't realize they unhinged their wings. That's that's crazy. And uh, they were actually able to keep the hives alive right. and so, above ground. Yeah. So I don't think, I'm not absolutely sure about this, but I don't think that the bees are actually making metabolic heat the way mammals and birds do okay. by eating honey. Um, okay. But their their warmth comes more just by them being so many of them together and okay. then... Um, and then this frictional heat. But you'd have to talk to a honeybee specialist well, to, to talk about that. Right. All I know is that most native bees don't have that ability, so they have to sort of wait until the ambient temperature rises enough for them to fly around. 
Okay. So again, thinking, you know, from the, the big groups standpoint or the mm -hmm. common names, which um, I, I know com in, in life science in general, common names and, and, and proper scientific names right. are uh, two different worlds. But uh, most, of, most of us gardeners live in the common name yeah. uh, area. So there's also a group uh, that I've heard about called leaf cutter bees. Yeah. And I think that's probably one of the ones gardeners encounter a lot and don't know what it is. Right. So uh, the leafcutter bees, there's a lot of different ones, mm -hmm. <laughs> the, a huge amount of diversity. Mm -hmm. That's one of the m biggest families, mm -hmm. uh, these long-tongued bees. And uh, there are two genera that are super common and specious in, in Texas and mm -hmm. North America. Um, one's called Osmia, and these tend to be uh, metallic bees. So either green or blue metallic bees, uh, a little fuzzy with either yellow or black hair on them. And and then the other one is called, the uh, genus is called Megachylae, and they tend to be mostly black, fuzzy bees with white stripes on their abdomens. But both of these groups of bees, uh, the entire family, you can tell them apart from any other bee out there because when the females collect their pollen, they collect it right under the underside of their abdomen. All other bees collect pollen on their legs. And so if you see a bee on a flower and it's got pollen on, on the underside of its abdomen, then it's definitely a leafcutter bee. Um, okay. If it's got pollen on its legs, it's one of the other five families. Well, gardeners uh, most often notice when they cut their little uh, small circular cut out of a leaf. And right. uh, maybe it's a rose leaf. We see it a lot on red bud. There's just mm -hmm. a lot of different species that it can happen on. Uh, but tell me about why are they are cutting this chunk out of the leaf? Mm -hmm. People are thinking maybe they have a caterpillar or something that's eating the leaf. But what's happening there? No, they're still bees, so they still only feed their young pollen, mm -hmm. not uh, any other part of the plant. Um, but the leaf cutter bees are the ones that are nesting in these hollow tubes. Mm -hmm. And so they, you know, in the old days, they nested in old beetle holes, and now okay. they'll nest in any available man-made hole, nail holes in a fence post, okay. um, the holes under your porch chair. <laughs> uh, so they'll nest in any pre-drilled hole. Okay. But what they do is they line the, each cell uh, within the nest has one egg, and mm -hmm. they stuff it with pollen first, and then they lay a single egg on that in that cell, mm -hmm. and then that egg hatches into a larvae, and it eats all the pollen in the cell. Mm -hmm. But the cells themselves, inside these hollow tubes are lined with leaf material. Okay. So it's basically the wrapping of a little bee nursery. <laughs> okay. So now when you see that tube, are you saying there's just one bee per tube or mm -hmm. don't they don't like um, lay a succession of those chambers filling right. the tube? So usually I think each female will, you know, claim a tube that she found. Okay. But then within that tube she'll lay multiple individuals okay. within that tube. And I believe there was a study done that where they could tell, because bees can control whether or not they lay a female or a male egg, uh, some of these bees will, will lay their the sexes in, in order okay. because females take longer to emerge or to grow mm -hmm. than males do. So they'll lay their female eggs first at the, at the back end of the tube, and mm -hmm. then the male eggs will be at the front end of the tube where okay. they can emerge 
more quickly, and then the females take a little longer to develop. So while the carpenter bee is digging the hole in the wood or eating the hole in the wood, would a would a leaf cutter bee then often go back behind that and use that hole, or are they using different size holes? Yeah, so uh, megachile can use uh, different holes. Uh, they can use carpenter bee holes, but it would have to be a really big species of megachile. Okay. There's only a few that get that big. Okay. Uh, carpenter bees tend to be much larger. Mm-hmm. Um, but every species in that whole big family, and the, mm-hmm. I talked about the two most common or species genera, but there's a lot of other ones that are only a few millimeters long. And so... Um, each species needs a different diameter hole. So the bigger the species, the bigger the diameter hole that it needs. But there's a lot of these tiny little species. Um, My favorite genus is called Ashmediella, uh, named after a previous entomologist, Ashmed. Uh, But Ashmediella are all these super tiny, really cute-looking black and white uh, bees. And they've got giant heads, so they look like teddy bears to me. So, so give me an idea on what tiny means. Um, oh. Maybe in diameter, only three or four millimeters in diameter okay. of, of a tiny little hole. Wow. So you see a lot of these bee boxes that, mm-hmm. that you can buy and, uh, or you can make. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of times they just have these really big holes or tubes in them, maybe mm-hmm. a centimeter in diameter. Right. That'll only get the biggest species. So if you really mm-hmm. want to attract a a lot of diversity of these leafcutter bees, then you, you're going to want to make sure that you start with little holes and okay. then work your way up from there. Well, let's talk about bee boxes. Um, mm-hmm. You see a lot of things for sale. Uh, one of the, I guess, lower end options is it's a block of wood with holes drilled in it. And right. then what you're describing is you're saying change out the drill bits. Exactly. Uh, and and you can some... do that in your own home with yeah. just a block of wood. Just get out a bunch of different, everything from you know, three or four millimeters in diameter mm-hmm. up to a centimeter. And, and what would be a problem with having a block of wood with holes drilled in it that you just leave out in your garden for years for the bees? Right. So um, bees don't exist alone. They have a lot of enemies out mm-hmm. there. <laughs> and uh, some of their enemies are parasites that are nesting parasites either wasps or flies, and sometimes even other bees that are cuckoo bees uh, that will steal the nests of other bees. And so when you have these permanent nesting sites, um, the longer a particular kind of bee nests in that over and over and over again, the more likely it is that parasites will also find that nest. So these parasites will end up building up in population over time when you have the same nesting substrate out there. Okay. So a lot of the newer um, options have uh, disposable tubes, either paper tubes or what I like is all the bam- little bamboo shoots. Now, bamboo okay. can come in a lot of different diameter holes. Mm-hmm. And so you just get a bunch of bamboo with different, uh, you know, at the bottom end of the stock, it's a bigger hole. And at the top end of the stock, it's a skinny little hole. So Oh, so they may come in from the front or back. Yeah, or you can just cut those up into section and have a bunch of different smaller tubes. Wow, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess there's probably a lot of information online that's not written by somebody selling the bee house, but uh, by people trained in this that mm-hmm. would tell you how to build your own and, and how to do it in a way that that is safe for the bees? Yeah, I'd put it in a, a area that's sheltered from the rain. Okay. Um, 
heat is good, so don't worry if you want to put it out in full sun. That's mm -hmm. just fine. The bees like uh, the warmth because okay. <laughs> they're cold-blooded. And then you tilt it down just very slightly so that uh, rainwater, if, if it is exposed, doesn't get in there. So the... The opening the bees go in mm -hmm. would be at the upper or lower end of the slope, the, or how are you yeah. describing? Yeah, so the the bees would enter at the lower end, okay. and then it would slope very, very slightly, very gently upwards. Okay, cool. Well, uh, you know, in nature, uh, before we decided to drill holes in blocks of wood and make paper tubes, uh, these bees were maybe going out to an old plant stalk. And the flower stalk right. in the garden that was hollow inside, and they were doing their, their living in there. Yeah, well, gardeners are uh, always asking me about uh, ways that they can help the native bees in yes. their yards. And, of course, bees need floral resources, but they also need nesting substrates. Okay. And these leafcutter bees uh, definitely could uh, use um, the, these hollow stems to nest in. And you can go out and buy a bee box. Mm -hmm. But my guess is that you probably have some plants in your garden that turn pithy or hollow at the end of the season. And at the end of the year, everybody wants to get out there and clean yes. up their garden yes. so that they don't have a messy garden. Right. But you know what? These bees sometimes depend on those uh, semi-woody plants that have those hollow tubes. Mm -hmm. And so you might actually be removing a bunch of pollinators for next year if you clean up that old debris, that one-year-old debris. So you're, you're saying you're not just taking away a, a potential home, but in, in pulling out those old plants, you may have bees in there. Already that, that, that are, are overwintering. That are overwintering yeah. for next year. So that is always a, a challenge with gardeners. Right. We, we run the range of uh, cottage gardens, let it be wild and, yeah. and you know, native uh, in every way possible to uh, the Louis the Fourteenth. Every hedge is squared at right. right angles and everything perfect. All and right. uh, we forget that nature drops leaves on the ground. I, I had someone once yeah. uh, ask me, uh, is it okay to, to use oak leaves for mulch? <laughs> I said, well, have you been in a hardwood forest? I think I heard that program. <laughs> and so the the um yeah yeah just embrace the mess there's some other ways though there's the ground dwelling bees right, talk about exactly. how do we help them in our gardening well just like anything else i don't tend to be a square hedge person mm -hmm. <laughs> uh talking about gardening i think the biggest thing to always remember is diversity 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 mm -hmm. so all the as many different types of flowers as you can but also as many different substrates as you can so some bees uh, most bees nest in the ground. Some bees require very compact, hard ground. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people who find these gregarious uh, native bee mm -hmm. um, uh, aggregations, it's really hard-packed dirt, like a dirt road or a human pathway or a, mm -hmm. a game trail or something like that. And then other bees need really loose soil. So it really depends on the species of bee. Some bees only nest in sandy soils. Other bees only nest in clay soils. And then it gets even more complicated than that because some bees will only nest on horizontal flat ground. And then other bees will nest in the vertical walls of stream beds and things like that. Okay. And so aspect, soil composition, uh, and then cover also, like um, that mulching that you talk about. Most native bees prefer bare ground, mm -hmm. bare dirt. They don't like anything um, on top. But some mm -hmm. bees want nest underneath 
clumps of grass, or other bees might uh, nest in pebbly soil. Okay. So um, diversity, again, is you don't want to attract one particular kind of bee. You want to have as many options out there to attract the most diverse uh, bee assemblage that you can. Wow. So, oh boy, all these kinds of bees. Mm-hmm. I know we're leaving out a whole lot of groups of bees here. Oh, yeah. So can you think of some offhand that I, I haven't mentioned in going through these uh, groups of native bees? Mm-hmm. Well, there are the sweat bees. Oh, okay. uh, That's a big group of bees. Um, and they're also highly social, just like the honeybee or the bumblebee. And the, the reason people know these groups of bees so well is because they're the ones that sting you. <laughs> okay. So um, social bees have their working females that don't reproduce, and they can be used as a defense force as well. So when you're out in the garden and you get stung by a bee, it's most likely one of three groups, either honeybees, bumblebees, which are also social, or sweat bees, which mm-hmm. are, again, social. Um, and they're tiny little, usually metallic, but sometimes just all black bees. Okay. And they're usually, you know, not much more than five millimeters long. They're tiny little things. But you can tell they're a bee smaller because they Smaller than a housefly, maybe? Yep, smaller than a housefly, okay. definitely skinnier. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can tell they're a bee because they have pollen on their legs. So anything okay. with pollen on their legs is a bee. Okay. Um, now, of course, only female bees. Uh, the males uh, won't be collecting pollen because they don't build a nest like the females do. Um, but the the social bees tend to sting, whereas most of the solitary bees, every female can sting, but most of them aren't aggressive. If they die, they can't lay any eggs. Mm-hmm. So it's not very good for the evolution of their species if they were <laughs> right. to get in aggressive battles. Okay. So uh, talking about that, I've, I know a lot of people are concerned about being stung by bees and mm-hmm. wasps. And uh, when you're allergic, it can be a life-death thing, right. uh, and, and so it's understood. But I have found when I work in the gardens, I'm always going up close to bees, mm-hmm. and, and um, I may be taking a picture three inches away from the bee, and, and I just, they never bother me. Mm-hmm. And so is this a kind of a provoked thing, like you, you grab a flower that mm-hmm. a bumblebee's down inside of, and, and you get stung? Right. Uh, And any female bee can sting. Mm -hmm. Males don't have stingers. Stingers are just modified ovipositors Mm -hmm. that other insects and other wasps uh, lay eggs through their ovipositor. Uh, The stinging hymenoptera um, have uh, modified that to they lay their eggs at an opening just before the stinger starts. And they've modified their ovipositor as a defensive weapon. Okay. And so all female bees can sting you, uh, just some are more aggressive than others. And usually, even with honeybees, they'll only be aggressive Mm -hmm. if uh, you're threatening their nest. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas even with native bees, I've walked around these gregarious swarms of 500,000 to a million of these uh, bees flying around me, hearing the buzzing all around you, and never got stung once. So. Uh, most bees you have to swat at or mm-hmm. um, handle in some way in order to get stung. Um, but And then the sweat bees, they're the ones that are on your skin when you're out in the garden because they're licking the sweat off of you for, uh, okay. for some micronutrients, salts. So, again, if and you just let them do that and then fly away, exactly. you're probably okay. Exactly. If you okay. blow them off of your arm just with a really quick 
puff, uh-huh. they'll just go away. If you try to swat them away, they will sting you. Okay. And everybody knows these sweat bees when you get stung. It's usually in your elbow or right behind your knee. When you squat down, you accidentally trap. Oh. Or when you lift your arm up, you accidentally trap the bee uh, in between your leg joints or arm joints. And that's when you get this quick little pinch. Okay. And that's a sweat bee. Okay. Not, not the kind of sting that a a paper wasp would would give you right or a honeybee and mm-hmm. honeybees uh, have barbed stingers mm-hmm. whereas native most native bees have smooth stingers so they'll sting you real quick and it it's yeah. less painful than the barbed stingers right. of the honeybees and less painful to the bee too yeah. because for the honeybee it eviscerates it partially to to sting you and mm-hmm. leave part part of it behind well, I know I keep asking about more and more mm-hmm. bees, but there's so many. And I want people to get a just an idea, and you threw that out in some of the early numbers, uh, of all the different kinds of native bees that we have. I don't know if I've asked you, but how many native bee types or species do you think, do you think we might have in Texas or the U.S.? We know of at least 900 species of named bees in the state of Texas. That is that number is probably much larger than that. Like I said, there's lots of undescribed species, especially the little sweat bees. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of undescribed species, and there's probably a lot that we've just simply never collected yet because there's not a lot of people out there swinging nets around trying to collect a bunch of bees. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, let's shift a little bit to... Um, the gardener. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about uh, maybe leaving a mess, or if you cannot leave a mess, mm-hmm. uh, maybe over on the side, you can have some hard packed bare soil mm-hmm. or some other things. And maybe you can gather some of those materials and just bundle them up and hang them over by the fence or right. something. Make a little decoration out yeah, of it. Yeah, let them yeah. stay around. Or the, the little paper tubes, mm-hmm. uh, houses, or bamboo and wood that mm-hmm. you would not keep for many years, but right. for a few, two or three. Yeah, uh, so there's the nesting substrates, and then there's the diversity of flowers that you choose to plant in your yard. Okay. Yeah. And that's also very important, not just from the diversity standpoint, but you want to make sure you have a lot of different flower types. Oh. Uh-huh. Um, you know, like sunflower type things, mm-hmm. uh, composites. Mm-hmm. They all have those uh, yellow, tend to be yellow flowers mm-hmm. with the rave ray flowers, which people call petals, uh, on the outsides of the, the flower. Mm-hmm. So they all sort of look like um, mm-hmm. a sunflower or right. Mexican hat or... Right. Uh, Co- coneflower, echinacea. Yeah, okay. black-eyed Susan. Mm-hmm. All those guys are related to each other. So okay. they're going to get certain kinds of bees that specialize on that okay. very large family of plants, mm-hmm. uh, Asteraceae. So you're going to get a lot of the same kinds of bees on those. Okay. And then you have the pea plants, you know, and, and mint plants. Oh. And each of those big groups of plants are going to have different kinds of specialist bees come to them. Okay. So not only looking at the color of the flowers, but also the shape of the flowers. Some okay. bees uh, only pollinate the ones with a deep corolla. Mm-hmm. Other bees pollinate things with an open flower plan like the composites. Mm-hmm. Um, so flower plan, mm-hmm. uh, how many petals it has, how deep the corolla is, and what color it is. So it doesn't help the bees 
the most if you have only Asteraceae, only these sunflower-type plants growing in the fall, and only the blue-type flowers growing in the spring. If you can have some of each that you know will, because they change over over the season, right? Just takes us back to diversity. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I guess another tip is don't kill them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so some of a lot of our pesticides uh, that are insecticides specifically are mm-hmm. going to be damaging to bees. Mm-hmm. And then we have the issue with the systemics. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that is something that is, let's say, safe for things running around the outside of the plant mm-hmm. because there's no residue there. But uh, we know now that some of those uh, neonics and uh, things like that would actually be in the pollen and nectar. Yes. And so um, when the bees are out there foraging, even if they don't consume enough of it by drinking the nectar to kill themselves, they're going to be giving their larvae tainted pollen. Okay. And so if... If whatever that insecticide you're using is is at all sequestered or systemic within the plant, mm-hmm. then those bees have those female bees have no idea that they're poisoning their own children. So. Oh, yeah, <laughs> and even a low dose that may yeah. not be an outright kill, but affects various aspects of the bees. Right. Well, a, even a low dose that that one female instead of making. 20 nests over her lifetime, mm-hmm. she might only be able to build two or three. So. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, avoiding pesticides on flowers mm-hmm. <laughs> whenever possible yeah, would when be, possible. I think, the safe safe way to go. Well, I know some people are, are thrilled to hear that not only can they have a cottage garden and not have to weed and take care of the place so much, now they can even leave it messy through the winter. Right. <laughs> say it's for the bees. For the bees. That's yeah. the excuse. Just get <laughs> a cute little sign out front and just say, bee habitat, right. and then uh, you've got your excuse. You don't have to... <laughs> worry about cleaning up. <laughs> well, y'all should sell those signs and raise money for the, the A&M insect collection right. <laughs> support. I think I would put one of those up. Oh, my goodness. A lot, so, so many different kinds of bees. Yeah. Um, and uh, you were talking about uh, the gardener in particular, and there are several other gardeners, uh, mm-hmm. types of gardeners. There's mm-hmm. people who love flowers, but mm-hmm. there's also the vegetable gardeners. Yes. And a lot of those plants that we like to grow are solanaceous plants. Uh-huh. Um, so the p- tomatoes, potatoes, uh, Pepper, peppers, eggplant, egg mm-hmm. yeah. And they have a really weird flower. If, if mm-hmm. anybody's ever looked up close, they mm-hmm. have this long, skinny yellow tube that mm-hmm. has pollen inside of it. And you need a special kind of bee to pollinate those flowers. They be a need, long tongue bee? Uh, usually. There are several different kinds of bees that can do the thing that we call buzz pollinating. Okay. And these long tubes full of pollen, they have a little uh, seal on the end of it. And what the buzz pollinators do is they fly up to it and they vibrate their wings at a very specific uh, frequency that will burst that little uh, thing and sends the pollen flying out of the flower. Yeah, or, or falling down to where the receptive parts on the flower right. are. Right, and, and so you need these bees that can buzz pollinate. And there's certain groups that can buzz pollinate. Honeybees cannot do this. Uh, some bumblebees can. Uh, alkali bees can do this. And there's so there's only a, a few bees out there that can do a really good job at pollinating your solanaceous vegetables in your garden. Well, one one thing um, that I've noticed, and I, I work with horticulture in general. So, uh, for example, a blueberry orchard, mm-hmm. um, the the blueberry flower is is a long tube, yep. 
And you want a bee that goes in there from the end Mm -hmm. and does the pollinating. But then we have this, I'll call it a lazy fellow known as the side working bees. And they cut a slot at the bottom. And I think uh, I've seen this on uh, the yellow bells, Texas, Mm -hmm. one of our favorite landscape plants. You'll see a little slit at the bottom Mm -hmm. where you can just go right in the side and have easier access. Right. So they're nectar robbers, right? They're going in and they're cheating. Instead of going into the front of the flower where they might accidentally pollinate, uh, they go in through the side and just suck the nectar out and and don't do any of the valuable work that the plant's looking for of pollination. Uh, But just because bees and plants need each other to live, doesn't mean that they're not still selfish creatures. Oh, my gosh. I was, I was kind of hoping that they were philanthropic. But. No, uh, they're not true altruists. The bees need something from the plants, and the plants desperately need something from the bees. So yeah, while they work together, it's not out of the goodness of their own hearts. Okay. Well, any other bee factoids that uh, we haven't covered today that have come to mind? Say, why didn't he ask about that? Uh, people need to know this. <laughs> Uh, I will just go on a little bit more about, you know, what what my title among other scientists are. Yes. There are three kinds of bee people out there. Okay. There's an apiarist okay. who is a honeybee breeder, mm-hmm. and they work with honeybees. They're the ones out in the field with all those bee boxes, okay. right? And so uh, they manage honeybees. Mm-hmm. And then there's an apiologist, and that's a scientist who studies bees, okay. and they study one species of bee, the honeybee. Okay. And then what I am is called a melatologist. And melatologist. Melatologist. Okay. And we study all the other 39,999 species of bees on the planet. <laughs> okay. Now, I'm sure there's jokes among melatologists about who's the lazy ones in the group, right. in the bee group, right? I mean, you so how many, you have to handle all the bees except one species. And, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. there's a lot to study about honeybees. Exactly. <laughs> and, and they're so valuable in agriculture because sure, we sure. can manage them. We can pick them up, move them from crop to crop. We can, yeah. you know. Well, but. We're, we're about out of time, but mm-hmm. uh, in the next few seconds here, there was a book you told us about called Bees in Your Backyard. Yeah. Will you tell me a little more about that? So if you're uh, interested in learning more about native bees, mm-hmm. uh, there's a really good um, uh, just a picture book, basically, of native bees called Bees in Your Backyard, um, developed by a, a good friend of mine. And they uh, it's a picture book with names in it and some information about uh-huh. common bees in your backyard. So you can uh, pick that up, and it'll help you start to learn the basics about native bees. And a lot of great websites, I'm sure, too. Oh, yeah, right? definitely. Well, we've been visiting with Dr. Karen Wright, Associate Curator of the Texas A&M Insect Collection today about everything bees. It's been wonderful having you. Thanks so much for taking time out. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Garden Success with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist Skip Richter. Join us again next week as Skip discusses your questions about gardening and landscaping in the Brazos Valley.
Garden Success is brought to you in part by the Arbor Gate, featuring unusual plants, artisan-created decorative pieces, and a constantly changing array of items that bring beauty, comfort, and even flavor to the home and garden. Arbor Gate, 15635 FM 2920, Tomball, Texas, 281-351-8851 or arborgate.com. Garden Success is also brought to you by the Farm Patch, 3519 South College Avenue in Bryan, 979-822-7209.